for the director of music, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is within me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour, and my God. Thanks, Carl. By way of explanation, there are two songs with almost identical names, and uh, the second one has gone, the right one has gone walkabouts. So there you go. If you write a song, don't name it almost the same thing as something else. That's just a tip. It never ends well. Well, it's, uh, I was thinking to myself, uh, as Steve was talking before, that um, I'm not sure how long our ministry partnership can go on anymore after discovering that he likes caramel latte. There's no, there is no excuse for that. Uh, it's, I can't, I don't know if I can go, even go on, but um, it's just all my emotions well up within me. It's lucky that we're dealing with difficult psalms this morning. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray as, as we come to that. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for all that you've given to us. Uh, Lord, we thank you that all that you give to us meets us in our needs. Uh, and Lord, some of us are in desperate need at the moment, or have been in the past, or will be in the future. And so, Lord, we pray that as we reflect on your word this morning that, that you would uh, help us to trust you even more, uh, and Lord, particularly in those difficult times. Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I think uh, most of us have been through sad times uh, in our lives at, at one time or another, and uh, we've experienced uh, that kind of 
those difficult and dark times for one reason or another. I uh, read a book recently in which the author talks about uh, what he calls his kitchen floor moments. Uh, They are those moments where he ends up uh, weeping. Uh, I'm not sure if he actually ends up weeping on the kitchen floor, whether it's just an image. But those moments that he's so overcome with grief that, that that's the only way that he can respond. He's kind of collapsing on the kitchen floor uh, and bursting into tears. And I think Psalm 42 is a, is a kitchen floor psalm, if you like. Uh, it's a psalm written by someone who's desperately sad and discouraged. Uh, it's someone who, written by someone who's going through a very, very difficult time. Uh, if the writer of this psalm went to a doctor, then he might be diagnosed with depression. Uh, and if you've suffered from depression uh, or something like that, then there might be a lot in this psalm that resonates with you and that you can relate to. And I think that there's a lot in this psalm which is helpful for people who are struggling with uh, depression or who have or who might. But again, like previous psalms, it doesn't say everything about that or it doesn't describe everyone, but it does say helpful things into that kind of a sadness and discouragement uh, and, and darkness. But actually, I think the term melancholy, it's a bit of an old term, I guess, but uh, the term melancholy or sadness is a much better term for what this psalm is about. I think it's a much better term because all of us, at one time or another, will experience sadness of some kind. Uh, All of us will experience uh, that kind of melancholy or listlessness or hopelessness, discouragement, without necessarily being diagnosed with something like depression, without sort of being depressed in a clinical sense. And I think that this psalm can speak to all of us in all our sadness. Uh, It it speaks to those of us who suffer from deep darkness, that ongoing depression, but I think it also speaks to those of us who feel rotten without kind of any label necessarily to attach to that. Well, the melancholy that the writer of this psalm is experiencing has a very particular cause. Verse 1, As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. This person is panting for God. His whole being is desperate for the nearness of God. He wants to meet with God, but God seems to be far away from where he is. Verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with him? People mock him and he withers. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night while men say to me all day long, where is your God? He eats tears as food. It's a very kind of vivid description, isn't it, of the emptiness which he feels. He's trying to find sustenance for life, but all he can find is the emptiness, the bitterness of tears. It's insubstantial uh, and empty. He's panting, he's thirsting, he's crying, he's starving for God. But actually there's another layer to this misery which I think helps some of us to get a bit closer uh, to, to where, or if you like, understanding that, that next layer helps us to understand or to get closer to where he is. Uh, There's lots of people who say that the cause of this writer's sadness is that he's far away from the temple 
uh, and so he's far away from the worship of God, and that's what's making him upset. I think that's obviously part of what's going on. But it seems that there's something deeper still. It seems that this writer is under attack. That's hinted at in verse 3. And it's even clearer later in the psalm in verse 9 and 10. He says later, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? He's being attacked And people are taunting him and asking, where's God? Where is your God? Where's the God that you believe in? Why isn't he helping you? In verse 4 then, he looks back and he remembers better times. And as he remembers those better times, it actually makes his situation worse. He says in verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. I remember it used to be so good. Do you remember that? Do you remember those times when God seemed to be near, when God was doing great and amazing things? Well, what's going on now? Why isn't it like that still? This psalm isn't like the last two psalms that we've looked at uh, last week and the week before. It isn't written by someone who isn't a believer and who uh, would like to be. It's not written by someone whose sin has damaged their life and they need God to rescue them from that. This psalm is written by someone who knows God and loves God and who longs for God to come and deliver them. They long for God to come and act. It's written by someone who's weeping day and night, someone who's inconsolable, someone who's panting and thirsting for God, someone who's crying out to God, but as they cry out to God, this iron curtain seems to be drawn down upon the gates of heaven. They call out, but their voice doesn't seem to get through. I was going to say that many of us Uh, longing for God to act, that for many of us, when we long for God to act, it isn't because of hostile opposition. But that was until uh, a friend sent me a a message this week uh, that said something like this. The main reason that I'm feeling so tired is because spiritually, my job is really taking its toll on me. Everyone I work with is against God. If you're praying, please pray for my colleagues that they will see hope beyond this world. That kind of opposition can be so wearing, can't it? It's not decisive, but just wears you down day after day after day. And we pray and we pray and we pray about it, but nothing seems to change. We go to work again and it's the same thing. And our question eventually becomes, where is God? Why is he far away? Why do my prayers go unanswered? Why do the cries of those who are against me seem to be true? Where's your God? But even if the root cause of of our longing for God to be near, even if that's different 
from the writer of this psalm, even if we're longing for God, not because we're being attacked by those around us, even if it's for different reasons, for those of us who know God and who love God, who, who trust in God, even if that's not where our suffering starts out, that's where it always ends up. Our questions always telescope into the same reality. That is, where is God? Why isn't he answering my prayer? Why has he left me like this? Someone that we love dies. Someone that's been a great source of joy to us. Uh, And we cry out to God. And nothing much seems to change. And the question becomes, where is God? Why has he let this happen? Why do my prayers go unanswered? Why, when I ask him to fix this, why, when I ask him to fix how I feel, does that not change? Or if we're lonely, especially if we're lonely after we've known the love and the care of friends and the fellowship of a great church, if all our friends move to another state or another town or all our friends just don't have any time for us anymore for one reason or another. If we walk around the playground at lunchtime and there's no one to talk to, no one who, who wants to do anything with us. We cry out to God, but nothing seems to change. And eventually the question becomes, where is God? Why doesn't he answer these prayers? Or if we're struggling to raise our children, maybe our children are keeping us from getting the sleep that we need, run off our feet, or maybe they don't listen to anything that we say. We try our hardest, but then they yell at us. Or we're watching them slowly wander away from God, wander away from the faith. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you're growing up in a family that's falling apart. And you feel like you're the one who's holding it together. It's not your job, but you try and help. And yet every time you try, it seems destined to fail. You just get your head ripped off by one or other of your parents. You cry out to God and nothing much seems to change. And eventually the question becomes, where is God in all of this? Why do my prayers go unanswered? I've been crying out this same prayer for three months, six months, ten years. And nothing seems to have changed. Those questions are actually harder questions for Christians than for people who aren't Christians. Because we trust God. We rely on God. We're the ones who are crying out to him and God's the one who's not answering us. This psalm raises, I think, for us one is what is one of the most painful questions of the Christian life. Where is God? What is he doing? Why won't he answer me? But how do we deal with that? Uh, It's one thing to know that that's the problem. How do we deal with that? This psalm, I think, helps us to do that. And the writer of this psalm does a few things that we can emulate, which can help us wrestle with 
uh, these difficulties. So he begins, first of all, by questioning and examining himself. Look at verse 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? He is, if you like, trying to establish a diagnosis of his spiritual condition. Why do I feel like this? Why am I so sad? What is causing this? It's a very important place for us to start. If you don't know what's causing you to feel the way that you do, you can't treat the disease, right? Or if you try to treat the disease, you'll apply the wrong remedy. So if you feel at the moment as though God is far away from you, then please ask yourself these kinds of questions. Ask, why do I feel like this? What makes me think that God is far away? Okay, you think God is far away, but wh- why do you think that? What, what, what is making you think that? Is that a reasonable thing or is that unreasonable? That is, do I just think it for no reason or am I thinking it for a good reason? What makes me think that God is not answering me? So don't be content just to feel how you do, but examine your thoughts and your feelings. Put them under the microscope. Put them to the test. Speak to yourself, why do I feel like this? And as you do that, you might discover that your feelings are based actually on a misunderstanding of God. So you might think that God has promised to give you the great Australian dream when God has actually just promised to rescue you from sin and, and, and into a, an eternity with him in a, in a new world. Or you might think that God owes you something when actually God doesn't owe you anything, but we owe him everything that we have. A wrong understanding of God will lead us into misery because we'll expect God to act in ways that he doesn't. Or you might discover that you feel like you do because you don't trust God. Uh, You might feel miserable because you think that you have to sort out every problem in your own life. Uh, Even the ones that are beyond your power, if you feel like that, if you think that, it will destroy you. You might know all the promises that God has made in Jesus, but you might live as though none of them were true. Uh, I I know that God has forgiven me, but I don't believe it. I know that God is stronger than my weakness, but actually I don't believe it. I know it, but I I don't live as though it's true. Or you might discover that the reason you feel God is far away is because you put all your hopes in something other than God. And whatever that was, it's let you down. And now you're angry with God... (laughs) rather than with the thing itself. You say to God, Why, how could you let that thing let me down? And God's sitting in heaven thinking to himself, well, it's because, because it's not me, that's why. So you put all your hope in how people relate to you on Facebook. And you post a message, and 20 minutes later, no one said anything. And you cry out to God, how could you let this happen? I exposed my deepest self and no one's responded. No one's liked what I've written. How could you be so mean to let me do that 
and not have all these people respond straight away. We'll put our hopes in, not, not in God, but in how, how people are responding to us, and how they're relating to us. It doesn't have to be just on Facebook. It can even just be an ordinary conversation. We speak to people, they don't respond the way that we want. We're devastated. Because our hope is in what they'll do for us rather than what God is doing for us. Or you might discover when you put yourself to the test that there are actually no reasons for feeling like you do. So sometimes you might wake up in the morning and you just feel like bursting into tears and you think to yourself, there's no reason for this, there's no apparent reason. Or sometimes your response to things is so completely disproportionate to the problem at hand. You spill something on the kitchen floor and all of a sudden you think to yourself, I can't go on, I can't, I can't go on living anymore, this is ridiculous. Uh, in those situations, I know that what I need to do is to make sure that I walk and go to bed. But even then, there are questions to be asked, isn't there? Why is life not worth living because of a minor catastrophe? Does God not love me anymore? Did God promise no mistakes, no catastrophes, not even small ones this side of eternity? In other words, the problem is tiredness and stress, but even in that situation, an inability to understand who God is and what he said the world is like leads us even further into problems. We still need to diagnose our condition and examine ourselves and apply the appropriate remedies from God's word. The point is this. If we don't diagnose our condition, we can't speak the appropriate truth of God into our life. We can't speak to ourselves the truth of God which meets our fears. Uh, Before we go on, let me also say something else which is not actually in this psalm but which I think is good pastoral wisdom. Uh, That is... That although most of, for most of us what we need to do is to learn to diagnose our spiritual condition, I think for most of us that's the case, we need to learn to examine ourselves and to, to think about what we're feeling and examine that. Actually, for some people, the problem can be that they need to stop trying to diagnose their spiritual condition. That is, there comes a point after five hours of trying to work out what your underlying spiritual condition is that you need to just say, I'm not saved by the accuracy of my spiritual diagnosis. I'm saved by embracing and clinging to Christ. There are some people who who get to a point of so much self-analysis that what they actually need to do is just to stop and to begin the next phase of the the process, which is to start applying the the remedies. So, So we can spend so much time in the diagnosis phase that we never actually get on to applying the remedies. So if that's you, please, please stop diagnosing and, and begin trying to apply the remedies, uh, which we'll go on to now. So this writer, he does that, he, he, he questions, he examines himself. But diagnosis, as I said, is, is not a treatment. It's not the same thing as treatment. And if there, 
and there are then in the rest of this psalm, if you like, four medicines which this writer applies to his soul. He diagnoses himself and then he applies four medicines. And the first medicine that he has is that he recalls the past, his, the, the past things that God has done as a source of hope for the future. He recalls the past things that God has done as a source of hope for the future. So verse 6, My soul is downcast within me, Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon from Mount Mizar. His soul is downcast, but he's determined to remember the promised land, to bring it to mind, the, the, to bring to mind the land that God had promised Abraham and that he had given to Abraham's descendants. He remembers the Jordan, the height of Mount Hermon, Mount Mizar. The most likely scenario seems to be that he's far away from the promised land uh, and what he's doing is calling to mind what God has done there in order to encourage himself with God's faithfulness. So he's saying to himself, remember what God did in the past. He promised that he'd give the land and look, he's done it. He's done that before. I know that he'll do it again. There are two ways, I think, for us to remember the past and it's important for us to distinguish between the two of them because the two have quite radically different outcomes. The first way to remember the past is like the writer did earlier in verse 4. We can remember the past nostalgically, better days. We remember the better days and we mourn for them. And we despair that things will never be like that ever again. So we can remember the past nostalgically, but the other way to remember the past is to remember it as a source of hope for the future. So how does that play out in our lives? Well, uh, you might remember happier days in your life and grieve over them. So you might remember the days when someone you loved was still alive. Uh, It might have been a husband or a wife or a child or a friend. And you might think to yourself, life was so good then. My life will never be like that ever again. But this psalm teaches us not to say that. But instead to say, wasn't God good to me in the past? Weren't they wonderful days? What a precious gift they were from God. I know that God will bring good days like that again in the future. It might not be in this lifetime, but it will definitely be in the next lifetime. Uh, Or you might remember happier days in the church. It might be this church or another church. You might remember a church experience where it seemed like everyone was on fire for God. And everything was going well. And everyone had loads of time. And everything that needed to be done got done. And every evangelistic endeavor was embraced with gusto. And it bore fruit. And people were converted. It was amazing. Or you might actually remember a personal experience like that. You might look back to a time where you were on fire, where you had the energy, where you had the passion. And it's easy to look back on those times and to simply grieve, to look back and go, well, they were great days, but I tell you what, it's never going to be like that ever again. What's the point? But this psalm teaches us not to say that, but to say, wasn't God good to us in the past? Weren't they wonderful days? Didn't God do a precious and amazing thing? I know that he'll bring good days like that again in the future. 
That's not the power of positive thinking. So with the power of positive thinking, you try and convince yourselves that there will be good outcomes, but you don't know whether that's true or not. But with God, we know. We know what's going to happen. We know that God is good. We know that God has the power to do it, that he has the will to do it, that he has the determination to do it, and that he, that, that he will one day bring that to pass. So this writer examines himself, he diagnoses himself, then he applies the medicine of remembering the past as a source of hope for the future. Next, he gives himself reasons to trust God. Look at verses 7 and 8. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He's saying to himself, yes, at times the waves are breaking over me. I feel like I'm almost drowning. But I know that God is looking after me. doesn't feel like it, but I know it. I know that God directs his love. I know that at night God's song is with me. I can't see it at the moment, but I know that it's true. We need to speak as this writer does, as this psalmist does. We need to speak into uh, our lives God's truth. So we might think to ourselves, God has deserted me. No, if you're in Christ, he can never desert you. Or you might think, God doesn't love me. No, God God does love you. If you belong to Christ, God has loved you since the foundation of the world. Which is a heck of a lot longer than anyone else has loved you for. Or you might think, I can't face this, whatever this is. But knowing Christ, he has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Extraordinary, isn't it? Everything. There's nothing that you need that you don't have. Or you might think, God can never save my friend or my child or my parent or my colleague. No. God will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So often in melancholy and despair, what happens is that we get caught up in the echo chamber of our own minds. The same depressing lies going over and over and over and over again. And what we need to do is to speak the truth of God over the top of that, over the top of the lies of our own minds, over the top of the lies of Satan, and over the top of the lies of the world. And that's why when we're depressed and discouraged, what we need so often is other people. Because it's actually very hard to speak God's truth into, our, into those echo chambers, resounding as they are, with all the uh, distortions and, un- and untruth. And what we need is other people to come along and say, no, actually, that's wrong. No, the way that you're thinking is incorrect. No, no don't you see that actually God does love you? Don't you see that actually life is worth living? Don't you see that, yes, life might look bleak now, but God will do great things in the years to come. The writer here questions and examines himself. He diagnoses himself. 
Uh, and then he applies to himself the medicine of remembering the past as a source of hope for the future. He applies to himself the medicine uh, of reasons to trust God. Next, he asks God what's going on. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal, mortal agony as my foes taught me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? It's important in speaking to ourselves that we don't forget to speak to God. Yes, it's important to speak to our own fears and to examine our hearts and to apply the right remedies, but it's even more important to speak to God because God is able to do the things that we are not able to do. He actually has the power to deal with our situation. He can fix it. We can speak to our hearts and that might make the journey a lot easier, but God is the only one who can solve the problem. It's important to say to God, Heavenly Father, I know that you love me, but I don't understand this. I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why I have to go around being miserable every day. Uh, why do I have to cry myself to sleep? Why can't I ever be happy? Why don't things ever seem to improve? Why, when I pray over and over and over and over again, do you not seem to answer in the way that I want? Why does it have to be so hard? Why are you so far away from me, so far away from the words of my groaning? You may not get answers to those questions, but you will begin to depend on God more and more and be afflicted by your circumstances less and less. And you'll also honour God by doing it. Because when we cry out to God, we, we honour God as the God who is sovereign over our lives and has the power to fix things up. So this writer diagnoses himself, he applies the medicine of remembering the past as a source of hope for the future. He gives himself reasons to trust God. He asks God what's going on. Last of all, he resolves to trust God. He repeats in verse 11 what he's already said in verse 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. He asks himself what's going on, yes, but he doesn't leave it there. He commands himself, he encourages himself to hope in God and he reminds himself of the certainty of what God will do in the future. I think that one of the reasons many of us find dark times so difficult is not because uh, we fail to cry out to God and it's not because we fail to diagnose our spiritual condition. Actually, often one of the most uh, common problems is that we fail to trust God. We, we fail to resolve to trust God. You pray and you pray and you pray, but at some point you need to stop and to say, I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You might pray and pray and pray and pray and no answer comes. 
Nothing seems to change, but you still need to resolve to trust God. In those those situations, most of all, you need to resolve to trust God. Because if we don't resolve to trust God, we won't trust God at all. If we don't say, God, I know, I don't know what's going on, but I trust you, if we don't say that, then we'll end up distrusting God instead. We'll cry out to God, but we'll think it's a waste of time. We'll cry out to God, but we'll live miserable lives, captured by our darkest fears. What we need to do is to stop and to call ourselves to trust in Jesus. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. You need to say that to yourself. Put your hope in God, soul. For I will yet praise him. This writer reminds himself that one way or another, a day is coming when he will praise God, when he will see God face to face, when his troubles will be over. Like the writer of this psalm, you and I don't know when that day will be. We don't know when our lives will begin to be brighter if they're dark times at the moment. But we do know that one day it will happen. That one day the clouds will part and the sun will rise and all our gloom and disappointment and discouragement and fear will all be cast away. God might give us signs and tastes of that in this life, but actually it won't be until the next life that that's well and truly the case. The psalm reminds us that however bleak the present looks, the future is bright. In a moment, we're going to sing a new song that expresses that really well. It says, There's hope beyond the suffering, joy beyond the tears, peace in every tragedy, love that conquers fear. I have found redemption in the blood of Christ. My body might be dying, but I'll always be alive. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we confess that we find our lives at times incredibly confusing uh, and worse than confusing, distressing and discouraging. Lord, for those of us who are in that uh, dark and difficult place at the moment, we ask most particularly that you would encourage them and strengthen them, that you would help them to know the cause of their sadness But more than that, to know the remedies available in your powerful word. To know the remedies in your promises. To know the remedies in crying out to you. To know the remedy of our sure and certain hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that 
for those of us who are not in dark times, but walking alongside others. We ask that you'd help us to be patient and kind and loving, to speak the truth with wisdom and compassion, so that together we might journey on toward that hope in Jesus Christ, when one day all our tears will be wiped away. Uh, And the joy of which we taste just a little will be once and for all complete, unsurpassed and unfading. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.